Welcome to the second episode of this Regeneron-sponsored audio series, in which we'll be exploring the importance of early diagnosis in familial hypercholesterolemia, or FH, and how we can overcome some of the barriers to achieving it. Thank you for joining us. I'm Dr. Don Wilson. I'm a pediatric endocrinologist, but I've spent the last 20 years of my career trying to avoid cardiovascular disease in young children that we take care of. I'm here at the Department of Pediatric Endocrinology, Cook Children's Medical Center in Fort Worth, Texas. And I'm Dr. Jason Turk, and I'm a general pediatrician also practicing in North Texas in the Cook Children's Healthcare System. I am the past chair of the Texas Public Health Coalition and a past president of the Texas Pediatric Society, and I'm very pleased to be with you. Well, welcome. I'm delighted to have you with us, Dr. Turk. Before we begin, a quick reminder of our previous episode in this audio series in which we covered the etiology of FH and the importance of early pediatric cholesterol screening. If you missed it, you can listen to it by visiting screenkids4lipids.com. Again, screenkids4lipids.com. And I hope you'll check that out if you didn't have a chance to join us for the first uh, audio series. Let's first discuss a major problem in the treatment of FH it's underdiagnosis. Dr. Turk, would you like to begin? Absolutely. Well, uh, a little bit of uh, basic information to level set everybody. So uh, familial hypercholesterolemia is actually quite a common condition. Uh, it has a prevalence that is estimated to be one out of 250 individuals in the United States. And there's a similar prevalence globally. It's therefore quite likely that most physicians are going to have one or more patients with this condition in their practice. Now, the prevalence of the homozygous form, which is much more severe, is actually much uh, less common. Uh, it's uh, one out of 300,000 or thereabouts in the global population. It is unfortunately quite an underdiagnosed condition because we are unfortunately not abiding by the universal screening uh, recommendations. Uh, it's currently estimated that less than 10% of individuals are diagnosed with the disease in most countries, which results in a large number of unidentified and untreated individuals with familial hypercholesterolemia. Uh, and I think that's probably because of a deficit in the knowledge and awareness of familial hypercholesterolemia among healthcare uh, clinicians, uh, whether it be physicians or, or uh, nurse practitioners or physician assistants. This underdiagnosis places, of course, an incredible undue health burden on the individuals as well as our healthcare system because we're uh, having to treat uh, all these individuals with premature atherosclerotic heart disease and its consequences. So this underdiagnosis of this condition really does create a lot of consequences. I think it's important to understand that uh, there are significant challenges. The less severe forms of a familial hypercholesterolemia are going to remain hidden because there's not really a, a, an easily identified phenotype that you see just on physical exam of your patients. Um, if it is not identified and treated, it conveys a risk of early onset atherosclerotic cardiovascular disease that is three to 10 times greater compared with the general population. The risk for fatal or non-fatal coronary heart disease for patients with the heterozygous form is more than 50% for men by the age of 50 and nearly 60% for women by age 60. The outlook is even graver for individuals with untreated homozygous familial hypercholesterolemia as most will experience a cardiovascular event and or death before 20 years of age. So what are your experiences, Dr. Wilson, in, in the patients that you see with respect to uh, this condition? Well, as you said, this is probably the most devastating 
condition that general pediatricians see on a regular basis that they don't recognize. And they don't recognize it, I think, not because they have lack of information or enthusiasm about preventative healthcare services. I think what many pediatricians, you feel free to correct me if I'm wrong, but we, we continue to see a lot of kids where we're concerned about being, the children are, are overweight or obese. We know that the phenotype there is actually quite different than FH. So if you test those children, which is not our primary emphasis here, uh, what you'll see is mild increased triglycerides, uh, a low HDL, and actually their LDL cholesterol is normal or slightly elevated at most. In contrast, what you see in FH is that you have a significantly elevated LDL cholesterol. So if you've eliminated secondary factors, you've tried lifestyle modification and dietary modification, but what you see is a persistently elevated LDL cholesterol greater than 160 in children and 190 in adults, that's heterozygous disease. You start seeing levels that are over 400, that's homozygous disease. It means that they have two affected alleles and that's kind of the worst because those children start developing symptomatic cardiovascular disease right around the age of 12, 10 to 12, some younger. So there's a real opportunity. And as you said very nicely, Dr. Turk, these kids actually have physical signs. So most of them characteristically have xanthomas. They look like warts on the extensor surfaces of the hands, the Achilles tendons, the elbows. And commonly, parents say, well, the child has persistent warts. Those aren't warts. They're actually cholesterol-laden macrophages. But it's basically telling you that the cholesterol level is high enough that the body's trying to protect the vasculature. Unfortunately, it's unable to do that. In contrast, the heterozygous are vibrant, healthy kids out there enjoying life. But I think we have an obligation to keep these young people healthy in the future because most of the events are gonna occur between 40 and 60 years of age. We want these kids to enjoy life as we all have. I also think that, Don, there does need to be a lot more encouragement of clinicians who see this patient population for routine well care to get this implemented as a part of their processes for this particular age group. We know that uh, based upon a number of, of studies that have been published looking at surveys of claims data, as well as uh, looking at the attitudes of clinicians who take care of the, this patient population that not everybody understands or is knowledgeable or even finds that screening is a worthwhile thing to do. And so I think elevating the knowledge uh, of our colleagues is super important to getting this done. And I think the key to it, and my hat's off again to the, the folks who do primary care, because you guys are really leading the, the way on this one. If we don't identify the children at an early age, we can't have the conversation about how to prevent this. Would you agree? Absolutely. And I, I may have mentioned it before, but you know, what we try to do in pediatrics is obviously catch the bad things when they're happening, but uh, more so our job is about preventing bad things from happening now and in the future. We, we are not going to be a witness necessarily to the majority of our patients who have familial hypercholesterolemia of the heterozygous type that we're not capturing um, because those events are going to happen well beyond the time that they've exited our practices. But it's still a very meaningful thing to be doing because uh, it will allow our patients to live longer, healthier lives. And of course, uh, in, in a more pecuniary way, will decrease the uh, cost to our healthcare system. Well, you know, it's interesting when you look at the literature and you basically look at uh, barriers, particularly for cholesterol screening in youth. 
you know, some of the literature sort of suggests that many of our colleagues may not be familiar with cholesterol metabolism to the extent that they're comfortable screening and explaining that to families. I think our job, particularly for the primary care physicians, is to explain why screening for healthcare conditions, irrespective of what they are, are important. It's because they translate into some bad events later on that we want to prevent. And this is a good example of it. I think we have every expectation of keeping people healthier if we can actually identify these things on the front end. But the point being is that just like we've done in newborn screening, for example, we have networks. I would guess that most of us, even if you're in a rural area, have figured out how to get colleagues to help you with conditions that you're not comfortable with or you rarely see. But we solved that problem by creating networks. In this day and age where we have video conferencing and audio conferencing, there should be no excuses for not reaching out and getting someone. It may be inconvenient for the families to drive. We do a lot of telemedicine visits, for example. Uh, but this is a service that we feel obligated to do because it's the right thing. Nobody is happy when they find something bad in their patient. But the finding of the bad thing isn't the fault of the pediatrician. That bad thing is going to be there whether you find it or not. The good thing about finding the problem is that you found it and you have the opportunity to make a significant, meaningful difference in the life of your patient. I think our primary care colleagues are very capable of treating a lot of conditions. Whether you had the time to do that or not is up for question. But, you know, if you want help learning how to treat this condition after you've identified it, I'd be more than happy to help. I think time is going to be, you know, the biggest issue. I think people that are practicing pediatrics in rural areas are, are not uncommonly going to come across problems and patients that are going to be beyond the scope of their practice. And identifying a patient with a heterozygous form of familial hypercholesterolemia may be outside of the scope of what someone is comfortable managing. Uh, in those situations, when they come up for me, I reach out to my colleagues like Dr. Wilson, um, and, and they are all too happy to help me with those things, whether it's arranging for a referral or making recommendations on treatment and, and giving me some specific parameters on how to manage a particular patient. So I think there should be every expectation that nobody's going to be out on a limb if they find a patient that needs to be uh, treated. The key thing in my mind is knowing that these patients still need to be identified and, and it's up to us to identify them and ultimately make sure that they get the proper intervention. Let me ask you, Dr. Turk, do you think that the clinical criteria for the diagnosis of FH is a barrier here. In other words, when you do the screening and we kind of get uniformity of that, that's part one. Part two is knowing what to do with the information. And understanding what ultimately is an abnormal that needs to be uh, further investigated and or uh, treated. I, I think this is one of those things that, that we all would revert back to our, our algorithms on. So all patients get screened and they're going to be generally uh, non-fasting screens if uh, they're above a particular level. In a non-fasting screen, you should do a fasting screen. And then what are the criteria on the fasting screen uh, that you need to know to ultimately determine whether something else needs to be done? I think with any new process, uh, you may need to look at that algorithm a few times, but after a while, you're going to be doing it enough that you're going to remember yeah, this is a kid that needs uh, intervention. And this kid is someone that I might want to repeat in a year. Um, so I, I think it's one of those things we just have to become familiar with and understand that there's value in doing that and expending the bandwidth to do so. Well, I think the pediatricians or the groups of pediatricians that have reached out to us, what we said is, let's just make this simple. When you do cholesterol screening, 
if you have a child who persistently has an elevated LDL cholesterol level after a repeat of modification of diet, increased physical activity, you've eliminated the secondary causes or think you have, if that level is 160 and above, then that was one that we need to see. But the question is not only what that looks like, but also how do you operationalize it if you have a six-year-old or 10-year-old or 12-year-old. So I think if you kind of make this real simple, and then as you said very nicely, we'll grow with our knowledge and experience, and this will look a whole lot different 10 years from now than it does now. Let me ask you this as a pediatrician, do you think there's uh, any of our pediatricians who really don't believe that screening makes a difference? Well, I would say that there are some misconceptions out there among families and healthcare clinicians as well. When people casually think about those individuals who may have familial hypercholesterolemia, they may be thinking about a, a particular phenotype of, of a child who's quite obese, uh, who clearly has some grossly abnormal body habitus. But it's been my experience that those individuals who I pick up with familial hypercholesterolemia are not ones you could pick out uh, on the street. They usually are fairly normal in their body mass index. Um, and, and if you dig a little bit, you might find that there's a family history, but not always. Um, and I have been surprised on more than one occasion uh, when I've picked up on a patient that I ultimately send to folks like Dr. Wilson. I think the other thing that is a potential barrier um, is really one of those sort of cognitive things that we deal with in, in, in medicine um, and in pediatrics specifically. Um, we are all as pediatricians worried about missing something in our patient that would come back to bite us later and have a, an adverse outcome. But we generally are not going to be taking care of the adverse consequences of our failure to screen these kids and pick them up. They're going to end up having adverse outcomes well after they've left our practices as pediatricians. Uh, we have to understand, however, that what we do now means a great deal to our patients. Well said. Do you think, as you reflect back on your own medical school career, those who are listening, as you think about your medical school education process, do you recall having much of a discussion about lipids or even FH, for example? Well, in medical school, absolutely, we did talk about uh, the problems uh, associated with hyperlipidemia. Um, and in my residency in pediatrics, we also covered it as it pertains to children. But generally, it was in the context of, of those individuals who have very severe disease, the so-called homozygous phenotype. Um, and so I don't think it's necessarily in the stream of consciousness for most people to understand that one out of 250 individuals has the heterozygous form of this condition. And identifying those individuals early on um, is so important at reducing the potential outcomes that would be adverse to them. Well, it's an interesting point you make because the knowledge that we gain in medical school as you get into practice, if you're not seeing it or thinking about it on a regular basis, it tends to sort of atrophy. And then the important point that you make is that these children, for the vast majority of them, are quite healthy. They're involved in athletics, drama, music. They're, they're making great grades. And you wouldn't think just sort of looking at these kids in the exam room that they have this high risk of cardiovascular disease. That's exactly the point, right? Without routine universal screening, we're going to miss these kids. And I think we've done them a disservice. I'm a biased population because I'm receiving these referrals, but I do find that the families are very grateful, not because their children have this, but because there's an opportunity on the front end to talk about prevention. Family history is a little complicated these days, but when you start talking to them, there's some very tragic events that happens with either themselves, their other extended family members, grandparents, for example, but I hope that in the future that we have a lot more children that have 
the advantage of knowing that they have risk factors and then avoiding them altogether. So that's true primary prevention. And I think we've come to the uh, end of our time here. I want to thank all of you for listening to this audio series episode sponsored by Regeneron. We hope you enjoyed the discussion as much as we did. If you're interested in finding out more, we have two more episodes available in this audio series on the importance of early cholesterol screening and making sense of homozygous disease. Be sure to listen to these episodes as well. With that, thank you, Dr. Turk, for joining me, and thank you all for listening.